Still no tennis or any sport for that matter, but boredom continues to grow day by day in this COVID-19 pandemic. And as the days tick away, we can mainly look back and reflect on the past with sporting nostalgia bringing joy to many in this difficult time, while we can also decipher how organisations can be restructured and improved. That's all that and more to come on Breakpoint Podcast today. Val Febo here with you, and as always, joining me is the one and only Joel Frucci looking at me directly on FaceTime. We're not in the same room again, but he's staring directly into my soul here, and it's a little bit concerning, but also nice at the same time. How are you, Joel? Yeah, good, Val. Um, I've just been I've been inspecting your soul, and I can see a lot of uh, RF caps in there. Your soul's actually wearing an RF cap. Yeah, no, it is. Um, it is. It's um, you know, the, he's a very he's very close to my heart always. And you know, <laughs> some I had a dream a few weeks ago that I went to the grocery shops with um, with Federer. It was it was weird. Oh, he made me bought? try honey. It was. Oh. And this is actually a true story. I did have a dream about that a couple of weeks ago. It was. <laughs> Really odd, and I woke up, and I'm like, all right, I've got way too much time on my hands at the moment. So, um, yeah, we thought we might need to need to start the podcast up again. Huh. What was the first thing in Fed's trolley? Just out of curiosity, I don't think he had a trolley. It was odd. It was just, it was, oh. you know, how you just have those weird dreams. It's just, um, yeah, when you've got a little bit too much time to think, I think that stuff all pops into your head, and it's, it's. <laughs> It's it's just weird. So let's let's digress. And look, last week we we did our first show back for a couple of years now, and I think we probably owe it to the people that hadn't heard the show before to to talk about sort of what we are, who we are, and what we're doing here. And um, we we started this show all the way back in 2015, wasn't it? It was our second year of uni, and um, yeah. back just just on the 2015 US Open, me, yourself, Ryan Tennyson, and Josh Campbell all got together and we thought it would be a good idea to do a weekly tennis podcast for our uni's um, online magazine at the Trobe Upstart. Um, and, yeah, from then on, we kept it going until after we graduated and um, continued it through doing it out of the the Brunswick studios of um, Podular Media, which you were very fond of, those studios, weren't you? <laughs> They're fantastic. Yeah, you loved it. The, the, I think the day you guys moved out of <laughs> there was... The day you guys moved out of there, I think you might have done a dance. I'm not sure. But, um, yeah. yeah, so we continued the podcast, and we just thought it would be a nice way to sort of chat, keep in touch, but also, you know, chat about the lighter side of tennis and something that we're all very passionate about, and which is the sport. And we um, we do love our tennis, and we want to bring everybody, I think, that sort of a different take on, on tennis and something that's very lighthearted, bit of fun, but also um, knowledgeable and also newsworthy and content-worthy at the same time and try and put a different spin on the sport. And, um, you know, it's it took us, you know, I think it was work that sort of got in the way of a lot of things and we couldn't really sort of match our schedules up. But now um, now we thought it was as good a time as any to, to get back into it and start again and start fresh and, and continue on. So, um, yeah, it's... Great to great to actually be back. The feedback from last week's show was pretty good, so fingers crossed we can continue to build from there. And we weren't actually expecting to put the show up last week. It was going to be a test run, wasn't it? But we thought, yeah. why the hell not? Yeah, well, it ended up being a pretty good show, actually, the uh, the, the, the test run that we did, Val. But, um, yeah, no, it's good to be back. And I think it was um, really probably the start of this year that um, we really sort of hatched the idea of, of starting things up again. Um, and... You know, I think it was it was just such a great AO. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time there at, at Melbourne Park, as I'm, I know you did as well. Um, and I think really, not not to say that you know, sort of my love for the sport ever really waned, but I think it, it was kind of just a reinvigoration of um, you know the reasons why I love tennis so much. Um, and 
yeah, and then I think it was I think it was actually your your, uh, your beautiful mother Zenko that actually suggested that maybe we get back um, get back onto the show and uh, yeah start uh, start chatting tennis again and um, yeah I think we we both liked the idea and you know we we chatted about it over a pizza and uh, and the yeah. final watching of course uh, oh, watching uh, well. I'm not sure if it was more of a choking by Zomnik team than uh, a comeback by Novak Djokovic, but whatever it was, we were watching the match and we spoke about bringing the show back yep. and we both liked the idea and um, then uh, old mate COVID-19 comes along yeah, and we've got plenty of time on our hands. And well, we went and bought time. the microphones and everything. We'd gone yeah. to JB together. We, it took us about four different JBs to go to, which is a yeah. hi-fi store, like an electronic shop in Australia and... Um, yeah, it took us about four ghosts to finally find the microphones that we wanted. Where, where did we end up getting them at Northland in um, in Preston in Melbourne? So it took us um, it took us a fair while to get them, but yeah, we um, we ended up getting there, and yeah, enough. It's just great to be back on the air. Yeah, no, it is good to be back on the air though, um, and I guess we're doing the best we can um, at the moment, as you said. But we did we did um, stock up on all the right equipment, but um, yeah, then uh, our friend. Uh, coronavirus came along so we're doing it this way for the time being but um yeah i guess the the, uh, the benefit of it is um you know we've got this uh, we've got quite a bit of time uh on our hands to to do the podcast and um yeah we're we're enjoying it so far it's good to sort of just like, release ourselves from from the isolation and you know the knowledge that we can't see each other and everyone else with uh with a bit of tennis chat so it's good and even though there's no um, there's no tennis at the moment. There's still a bit of news going around, and um, you know we're excited to sort of reminisce on on some memories, which um, we're going to be doing later in, in the show. But also before we do that, um, there's been some really interesting stuff put out from a couple of uh, a couple of big personalities in uh, in Australian tennis, which um, we'll get to in a minute. Yeah, there sure has Joel, and it's it's been I think one of those weeks where I think there's been so many changes, and obviously Rogers Cup, the women's event in uh, Montreal has been cancelled, the men's event in Toronto still scheduled to go ahead, but you'd assume that that will be cancelled any minute, really. Um, I, I, I can't see if, if Montreal's not going ahead the same week, Toronto's not going ahead. So it's uh, that's that's sort of imminent there. And ATP CEO Andrea Guadenzi wants to get as many tournaments played as possible towards the back end of the year. I don't see that happening either with how things are going. We're almost in, we're halfway through April already and it doesn't look like there's going to be any sort of um, slowing down globally of this, um, of this pandemic. So... Um, yeah, it's it's very, very interesting. But I think looking at what you just said with um, the proposed changes to different structures, we've had two. Sam Groth and, um, and John Millman have both come out and said and talked about sort of restructuring the ATP World Tour and how things are run. Um, do you want to go into Millman's tweet and discuss what he just put out this morning? Yeah, so essentially John Millman's floating the idea of, uh, of an interstate uh, competition in in Australia. So, um, I suppose for those um, for listeners outside Australia that are that are tuning in. So, obviously we have um, we have here we have Tasmania, Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland, the ACT, Northern Territory, and Western Australia. So, the country is broken up into those states. So, what what John is proposing essentially is a essentially a um, a tournament um, that will comprise of of teams um, consisting of of two legends, one male and one female, six current players, three males and three females, and two juniors, one male and one female. Singles, doubles, and mixed doubles are all play. Um, and he's suggesting um, a different scoring system, which I think is um, just an idea at the moment. Nothing's really been 
sort of mentioned, but importantly, the players in that tournament um, get contracts. So essentially, it's, it's sort of financing uh, their lives um, on the back of on the back of coronavirus. So, look, I actually think it's a good idea. Uh, certainly, from um, you know an Australian interests point of view, I think it'd be it'd be good for tennis to kind of reinvigorate things from from that perspective. Certainly, getting the legends involved. I think um, you know when we're talking about this thing as a bit of a, a bit of a showpiece. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think I think I know Australians and I'm sure generally speaking the broader, you know, population of, of the world enjoy seeing the, you know, the legends come back and dust off the racket and, and have a bit of fun um, out on the court. But I, I think certainly as well in, in Australia, um, you know, I know there's a lot of um, there's a lot of support in other sports for um, state of origin competitions and of course in, in rugby league with um, Queensland and New South Wales down here, it's it's a really big deal. So, I mean, mm. there's a lot of support for that concept. Um, I guess the interesting thing is whether we can actually bring it um, to tennis and apply it. I, I think, I mean, I think when, when the term state of origin is mentioned, I actually think it, it can sort of gain some traction. Um, and, look, it's certainly, it's definitely a good idea to um, to really involve the local players because, it you know, it brings down... The, the, the travel costs and I guess if you look at the the stable outside the likes of you know Yash Barty and Nick Kyrgios John Millman um, you know even John himself um, you know probably um, you know has has to obviously tackle his um, his travel expenses and and will probably be doing um, a lot of it on his own but certainly you know people like Nick Kyrgios and, and Ash Barty would would have a, I'm guessing a fair bit of help <laughs> with their travel budget so you know I think with the with um, you know the, the several lower ranked Australians, it would certainly help them in that respect and, um, you know, give them a bit, a bit of a financial out, um, raise their profile within the country. Um, and also, um, you know, if, if it gets to the point where rankings points potentially become, you know, um, are put on offer, then then certainly it helps them really yeah. uh, across the board. So um, I suppose that's, that's a big point that we would have to discuss, the, the rankings points, because there's a freeze at the moment. Yeah. Um, but look, I mean, generally speaking, I like the idea because I think it'd be good for the for the sport um, as a whole, and it would probably work for the players and really give them some security on on the other side of this whole thing. I guess the big um, another sort of major thing that we'd have to overcome um, is we'd have to get to the point where um, the the state borders are, are actually open. So, yeah, um, which they aren't uh, at the moment. In, so it's yeah, they aren't at the moment. So in in Australia, obviously, um, you know, we've got. Uh, I think Victoria, New South Wales, the two, I guess you could say the two major states, um, the borders are open as well as Tasmania. They're the three um, that are open. Um, but we'd have to get to a point, obviously, where the borders do um, do reopen. Um, luckily for us, the, the the curve looks to be flattening a bit, so there's yep. optimism there. But um, again, I think, um, you know, the certainly the federal government will be more, um, I think, realistic, pragmatic and cautious than, than optimistic in, in loosening those. So that's obviously a major hurdle to, to overcome. But I actually do like the idea. I think it's something that, that could um, that could get some traction. Yeah, well, I think some of the notions here are, are great. I don't think ranking points would be able to, to come into or as a factor for this tournament. I just think that because it's yeah, just I think so, yeah. because it's just Australians that are that are in this tournament, I don't think that ranking points could be a thing. I do like the idea of tennis state of origin, which you know, it, it doesn't have to be every year, but I think if they did it towards the end of the year, if crowds are sort of permitted to come into sporting events, which they're expecting to happen, but I think if, if it does 
if it does go that way, I think Tennis Australia can really build it up. Channel 9 can get involved um, with broadcast rights. And I think it could be great for the younger players to get some money and some traction to be more well-known, but also to get them some money to um, to go overseas and you know help them with their transition costs. But I think it could be good just to, and, and to put them into some competition play and high stakes. If the players buy into it, it could work really, really well. And possibly if they do do it this year, it could be a way to sort of regenerate it where maybe once every four years, all the players sort of come together and do something like this. Because it could, it, like maybe in December when there's not much else happening, um, you know, there could it could be held in one state sort of every, every few years. And um, kind of like a very rare Olympic type sort of, Australian tennis thing where the whole Australian tennis community comes together and watches the country's best go at it. So I think it could really work. Um, this year, I think, could be a good starting ground for it if if it was to to come to a head, but I'm not sure that a lot of things still need to happen, as you said, with states opening borders and etc. So it's not a bad idea from Johnny, and um, he's he's generally one that, that does want to try and help the younger players come up and try and help them with their transition and often is that shining light on saying that the disparity of wages between the top and bottom ranked players is far too wide. So it's fingers crossed that something does come out and and help that transition and help um, players sort of get to where they want to be in in a far easier fashion. But continuing on with that, Sam Groth on the first serve this week is also... um, has also come out and said that he want, he sort of had a radical idea to change and restructure the ATP and WTA, saying that instead of you know having challenger tours all around challenger tour level events all around the world, countries should have maybe twenty five to thirty or regions should have twenty five to thirty maybe even more in their own backyards so that players can stay home and cover travel costs so that they can eventually move into that top echelon, start excelling, and then make their way onto the ATP World Tour. And um, if you don't understand what I'm talking about, it's kind of like how golf does it with their PGA Tours. But here's Sam's explanation on the first serve in 11.16 SEN on Monday night. Instead of Tennis Australia going out, for example, and and funding players, why don't they put on a 25, 30-week tour here in Australia, have a tour in Australia, a tour in Europe, have the ATP tour above, obviously, South America and Asia and all the regions have their tour, and you still earn ranking points. And if you do really well, you can still jump up into that main echelon. But maybe you have orders of merits like golf does, where if you finish top two on the Australian tour next year, you gain entry into or automatic entry into certain amounts on the ATP tour, you get certain entries into Grand Slam events, and maybe then, because the conversation always comes back to how can we support the lesser ranked players better, if you can offer them a tour with the ability to travel less, keep their travel costs down, but also the ability to earn more ranking points, and if you go and excel, it's the players that go and travel and and reach their way up to the top that are, are the ones that are excelling anyway. They're the ones that move through the level. If you can support those players with a tour where it maybe costs them less to start with before they do transition through, I think that could be a, a good option. That was Grothy down with uh, BP on Monday night. One of our good friends, Brett Phillips, on this show. And uh, what a wonderful man he is. But, Joel, um, it's a really interesting theory. And, look, I'm... I'm Sort of, I'm a little bit quizzical with how this could be done, but it's not a bad idea in theory. A lot 
of water would have to go under the bridge and a lot of work would have to be done. But it's it's not a bad idea, especially from an Australian point of view. Uh, Tennis Australia probably could start to look at doing this with the ATP um, and WTA in turn, saying that they, you know, they should have some of these tournaments, get the homegrown talent playing their own tournaments, and obviously people from overseas if they want to, um, and they can get their ranking points up and try and really branch out on the tour, get and you know get themselves ready for ready for a hard slog in Europe and around the world. Um, yeah, look, I, I think. It works, certainly. Uh, you know, and again, we talk about reducing travel costs for lower-ranked players. Definitely in that in that respect, it would help a lot. Um, and of course, because, you know, we're so far away from literally everything else that, you know, it's going to cost a lot for, for Australian players to, to really break through and, and actually make it sustainable for themselves. I think the big sort of worry for, for me is, is, um, is it too... Is an idea like this too restrictive when it comes to... Um, being across, um, being across the different surfaces, um, yeah. Because I suppose, unfortunately, in at least in our case in Australia, we have a lot of hard courts. We have a lot of um, we have Ontakar, we have mod grass. Um, in the more rural communities, there's a lot of grass courts, which is great. Yeah. Um, but f- like an example, there's not a lot of clay courts. Um, I know at Melbourne Park there are there are a few down the bottom there um, along along Swan Street. Um, but I guess without without sort of having a, you know, a broad idea of how things operate in the other states, um, I, I can't imagine there would be there would be too many um, clay courts around um, in, in Australia. And definitely even to go on grass, you have to go into the more sort of rural communities, yeah. which I guess isn't necessarily the worst thing. But um, I guess given how vast Australia is, it can be time intensive to actually get out there and, you know, all the driving and that kind yeah. of thing. It's a minor thing, but... Uh, um, you know, I, I would be interested to see how how it all stacks up. So I guess that that would be my my big concern with that, just being um, uh, you know, I, I guess taking away from the ability for players to um, to go and be across uh, all the all the different types of surfaces. Yeah, I do agree with you there, and clay courts. Uh, notions in Australia that, you know, clay courts are very hard to come by in Australia. You mentioned the ones at the Tennis Centre on um, Olympic Boulevard here in Melbourne, but there's not too many more around. Obviously, funding does need to come and we do need to make some more, but grass courts, if you go to Shepparton or some of the rural communities here in Australia, rural towns or country towns, the bigger ones especially, have a lot of grass courts around. But if you talk about driving and stuff, I don't think that's going to be too much of an issue because everything's sort of easily accessible here in Australia. And look, Shepparton's maybe a three-hour, two-and-a-half-hour drive from Melbourne. Echuca is three hours. I think there's courts up there, maybe three-and-a-half. But if you talk about going from town to town in Australia, there's no difference between doing that in Europe and driving around all those different countries. It's actually a lot easier to get around Australia um, with no customs and it's just real roads or, or planes or something. So... I think it'd be a lot easier to keep travel costs down. You'd be staying in motels and and some of the hotels which don't cost nearly as much as the ones that are overseas and they're getting an opportunity to get more of an income whereas they wouldn't um, when they're flying or training in around Europe. So I think it's I think it's a lot better for them around like for the young Australian players in that sense because things are more easily accessible. But you're right with this surfaces, it does need to be more evenly spread. It can't just be all hardcore or 
yeah. you know, playing on grass. They do need a lot more clay court tournaments. And we don't, in, in Australia, we don't develop our players on clay enough. We really don't. Um, they generally go to Europe and then start playing on the clay, which isn't fair. I think it does need to start here very soon. And, you know, they've gone the right way about it by putting the clay courts in at um, at the Tennis Centre in Melbourne. But, it, you know, more need to come. They need to be in every state, accessible in every state. They need to be proper clay courts like the European dirt. It does need to happen because it's not... It's not easy, and the South American players and European players grow up playing on clay, and that makes it so much easier for them to compete at yeah. the French Open. When was the last time an Australian had a big run at the French Open? It was Leighton Hewitt in 2004 making the quarterfinals. Doesn't happen much. So we and then of course Ash Barty last year. Well, I should, so oh, how the hell could I forget that? And Sam <laughs> and St- Sam Stozer as well. But I think on the men's side, especially the women in Australia seem to do a lot better on the clay than the men do. And that's why I'm bringing that argument up because um, I don't know, for some reason that I think Barty's game suits clay quite well. And so I, I didn't think it would, but it does. And same with Sam Stozer, but um, and Daria Gavrilova, not a bad player on clay either. And Isla Tomjanovic can also perform on the red dirt as well. So fingers crossed that that does happen, that we start promoting clay court events a little bit more, but um, as you said, a lot more a lot more needs to be thought of in this proposition. I think it does work in theory, but practicality wise, I think more needs to more needs to be done. So I think if they can start fleshing something out like this, I think it could be a really really good idea. But it, it's there's a long way. I've probably five or six years maybe until something like this actually starts. Yeah, and I think look, I think the underlying thing is that it's it's always useful when ideas are put forward, as Grothy actually said on the first serve, to support the the lower ranked players because we don't sort of want that that real. No. Even though we already have one, we've got a real hierarchy in in um, in, in tennis and you know in the top one hundred, the top ten, um, etc. We want we want more players to be able to have a chance to to break that down and and really push up higher in, in the rankings, and of, of course. Um, you know, some players are, are going to be um, more consistent than, than others. That's just the reality. Yeah. But, um, you know, the, the more opportunity we give these lower-ranked players to, to push up further and shake up the sport is going to be obviously better for them as a start, but then better for the sport um, as, as a whole, particularly, I think, on, on the men's side more so than the women's because um, the great thing about the WTA is it's so unpredictable that um, there's there's a whole sort of catchment of players that on any given day can beat anybody, but yeah. um, there's more of that um, that real that real hierarchy on the on the ATP. So um, yeah, definitely. I mean, I definitely welcome these these kind of ideas because I think the more uh, the more of them to to bring these players up in the into the rankings, the better. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think um, you are right. The WTA there's a lot more sort of inconsistency in the players. The men are a little bit more consistent in the way that they perform, but um, I think that the lower ranked players do need a little bit more support, and they're not getting enough at the moment, especially from down below 150 or 200 in the world. It's very difficult for them. So fingers crossed that you know these initiatives do come into fruition, and we can get them. Um, we can get them up and going because we need to see these players supported because some some players with a lot of skill might not be able to succeed um, in the ways that they should be able to because of just lack of funds and that and that's that's yeah. not right. So I think we need to give every player every chance of succeeding and every chance of being that next great uh, sorry Grand Slam champion. So fingers crossed we do see something like that in the future. But if you know it, it, as we've both said, there's a lot. 
more work that needs to be done in that sense in actually developing the plans and and putting them into fruition so it's it's not easy but it's a great theory to start with and i think we can definitely or tennis australia and all the tennis governing bodies can certainly build on on these notions so it's it's a good initiative but a lot of work needs to be done but moving on from from that joel we've um you know as there's no tennis at the moment I thought it would be a good idea to, or we both thought it would be a good idea to look back at some nostalgic moments in um, in tennis. And, you know, th- there's been a lot being promoted by all the Grand Slams, by Tennis TV, the WTA are all promoting, you know, old matches of the past, great matches of the past, and yeah. um, some of the best shots and hot shots, trick shots, best misses, and... and <laughs> Um, Benoit, Benoit Pair. We're going to get to him later. We've, we've got a, we've got a special surprise for Benoit. But there's a lot of um, there's a lot of this stuff going around on social media and um, on the on the respective governing body websites. So we thought we'd dive into that or delve into some of our favourites. And we we thought we'd start this week with our favourite Grand Slam matches of all time. And um, we, we what do you want to start with? We've got top fives. Do you want to start with men's or women's? Uh, I think we'll start with the women. Ladies women? first. Women's? Yep, exactly. We're, we're nice and honourable here. So let's go with the women's now. Joel, we'll go with your five first, and, or your number five. Um, what was your fifth favourite women's match? I noticed you've got a lot of recent ones in here. Yeah, yeah, there are a lot of recent ones. Um, yeah, I think there's been a lot of really great stories on uh, on the women's side um, of things in the, in the last last few years. Um, so my fifth favourite was uh, the, um, the first round, Wimbledon. Uh, last year, 2019, um, Coco Golf uh, up against Venus Williams, and of course Coco won that uh, 6-4, 6-4, and that was really um, the the start of the emergence of Coco Golf, if you if you like. And yep. um, of, of course, she's still got a long way to go, and we don't really want to pump her up too early. Um, but God, she's impressive. She really oh, no. is. A, she really is a talent, um, and. She's beaten Venus twice already in her <laughs> no, career. Unbelievable! She's knocked <laughs> her off at the Australian Open and yeah. at Wimbledon, so two yeah. two slams. Um, it's just it's crazy how how unbelievable she is for someone that's still fifteen years old. She's made yeah. a Grand Slam quarterfinal already and been to a Wimbledon fourth round. She's just she's a stunning player to watch. Um, my now I I've just noticed that I've missed one completely that's on your list that is definitely in my top five. So I'm going to change it. I'm going to get rid of my fifth one, um, okay. and put in the 2019 Australian Open final between uh, Naomi Osaka and Petra Kvitova. It just had everything, and I know you're going to get to this later, so I won't steal your thunder. But um, it is it was it just had absolutely everything. I was uh, lucky enough to be sitting in the in the bunker that night. Um, watching that from from ground level, and there yeah, was no grunting, nice. which I loved because I, grunting just should be stopped. It's disgusting. It doesn't need to happen. It doesn't need to be a part of tennis. But there was no grunting. Yeah. They were hitting the cover off the ball. And Both it, genders, by the way. Exactly, a hundred percent. It's not just women. It's all the men that grunt too. It's unnecessary. That don't need to do it. But it, it was just a stunning match, and just had everything. Had ebbs, flows. Um, it had, you know, peaks and troughs, everything. So Osaka beating Petra Kvitova, 7-5, That was my fifth. Probably could go higher, but it was kind of, that one was kind of put in on the fly there. So get rid of my fifth, which originally was Sibulkova over Radvanska in the 2016 Wimbledon fourth round, 6-3, So we'll move to number four now, Joel. What was your fourth best? Yeah, so I'm throwing back to 2018, um, the Australian Open semi-final between uh, Simona Hullett and Angie Kerber, which 
uh, semi uh, Simone Halep um, ended up winning six three four six nine seven. So it was a really big third set. And, yeah. Um, you know, it was just one of those matches that you could just keep watching and watching. Um, just two real warriors just, just going at it, and we know the defensive capabilities of uh, of, of both players. And um, you know that that sort of full that full set was was really on display that night. And um, you know, we just got a, a match that was just really a uh, an absolute treat, and it was a shame that it had to end. To be honest, it really was. I was um I was in the media workroom that day at the Australian Open, and I think every single journalist had that match on their screens and you could hear the groans from rows, probably 10 rows away. <laughs> um, and everybody was like, oh, it was, it was, it just had absolutely everything and it was a wonderful match. And that was actually my fourth one as well. So um, we can kill two birds with one stone there and um, we can move on to number three. Who was your third? Number three, um, you know, if people thought um, our, our <laughs> the ones we've already reeled off were recent, well, this is uh, even more recent. Uh, one of the very few matches we actually had um, in 2020, the Australian Open final between uh, Sophia Cannon and uh, Garbina Muguruza, 4-6-6-2-6-2. And the reason I have this match in my list is because there was a real turning point um, in this match, in, in the third set, where the, the, the title really was on a knife's edge. Um, mm-hmm. And in the end, as we know, it went Sophia Cannon's way. She was love 40 down. I think it was the third game of that set. She was yep. love 40 down. And just showed absolute nerves of steel to come back and hold serve in that game. Um, and not only did she hold serve, it was the way that she did it. She didn't just play conservative and, and just and just hit, hit the spots, go for depth. Um, she she went for it. She went for the corners and absolutely end up the line each and every time, I think. So um, it was just great to watch um, Sophia Cannon come back from that point and... Um, I think in, in those kind of situations, you really you really learn um, about about players. And um, Sophia certainly at this point, um, at least to us in Australia, I don't think we were really aware of the quality that she had. She she had a couple of good seasons on tour and yep. was really building up. So I think this was this was um, a kind of culmination yep. for her. But you really you really see the I guess the fighting qualities in in players when that happens. And um, you know she. She really showed everybody that she is a real fighter, and I think I think that uh, that one game just summed it up for me. And she's still really young as well, so I think what's yep. great for her is that there's still a lot more to come. Well, she was on the precipice, and she well and truly broke through that. So wonderful tournament yeah. from her, and it's been a um, yeah just a wonderful couple of years built up for her all together. And then she um, that as you said, the combination was that maiden Grand Slam title in uh, Melbourne this year. And my number three was uh, all the way back in 2009, which is 11 years ago now, and in the fourth round, Yelena Dokic coming out, and it was her first oh, Australian yeah. Open yes. in such a long time, and it was kind of a comeback Grand Slam, and she what came a out. Tale. Oh, it was it was just it was just nuts that night, and uh, she took on Russian Alyssa Klebanova, who was screaming the roof off the joint, and um, seven five five seven eight six to move through to a Grand Slam quarterfinal, where she eventually lost to eventual runner-up uh, Dinara Safina in three sets, but. Look, she was just brilliant that night, Dokic and Klebanova threw absolutely everything at her, and um, it was it was just, it just had everything. The crowd was uh, up in arms, hoping that uh, Dokic would come through in the end, and she did. And it was just it, it was wonderful to see such an underdog story with um, all of the mental demons that she's had to fight through, and also all the demons with her father and everything that yeah. he put her through, and to see her finally get back and um, you know have that 
further success at Grand Slam level. It proved her quality and it proved the resolve that she had and still has. And um, it was just a wonderful match and she deserved every single round of applause that she got that week and all that over that two week period. And it was yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Brought a tear to most people's eyes and yeah, just phenomenal. And that run will always be remembered um, as part of Australian open folklore. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think the, the great thing with Yelena, obviously um, I don't think the, um, you know, the, the, the sort of the lengthy streaks um, in slam sort of lasted overly long. Um, no, that was her but- last one. Yeah, well, she exactly. lost to Klebanova in the first round the next year. Yeah, well, there you go. But um, yeah, I mean, I think since then as well, Yelena has become um, you know one of the great tennis analysts in, in Australia. Um, you know, I, th- I think she's been around the sort of the media scene for a few years, and um, yeah, it's been really good to see her make that transition, um, and uh, it's good to have her back um, in the sport, and um, I know certainly um, in the in the Australian summer swing and and uh, and the AO. Um, I really enjoyed her, um, yeah. her analysis. She speaks sure really right. well. Yeah, she does. Yeah. You're number two, Joel. My number two, and uh, I'll let you speak more to this, Val, but um, I think it was a match that um, everyone in Australia just, just loved. Yeah. Um, the, the 2019 French Open uh, final with uh, Ash Barty defeating uh, Marketa Vondrasova 6-1, um, 6-3. I think luckily for us, um, it wasn't as nerve-wracking as the semifinal. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, God. Um, oh, that Amanda Anisimova had Barty on the ropes, but this one was she did. this one was a lot more one sided, and Barty was able to get through and and do a wonderful job and win that maiden Grand Slam title. And then two weeks later, she was world number one. So just just a wonderful year, and um, both of them were probably unlikely fi- or definitely unlikely finalists heading into the tournament. But yeah, superb superb win from mm. from Ash Barty. And as you said, I will get to that um, very very soon. But um. Uh, my number two was the U.S. Open final in 2011, where Sam Stoza finally, finally got that elusive Grand Slam, and it was the one she wasn't expected to win. She came over Serena mm. Williams and destroyed Serena in her home Slam final, six two six three, and um, Serena wasn't very happy after the tournament and after oh, the match. Which, pardon? Understatement. Oh no! Uh, yeah, I think uh, Serena. Serena's not happy most of the times, and we've seen over the last couple of years Serena's cracked it a few times, especially the 2018 uh, U.S. Open final against Naomi Osaka, which we won't bring up because I'll get angry. Um, but yeah, yeah. Sam Stoza just way too good, and it was so good to see all of her hard work pay off, and and to finally get that elusive slam in New York, and um, you know, get the recognition that she deserves because a lot of people still, and she she's yeah. been kind of like that that perennial uh, whipping whipping girl of Australian tennis that she can't perform on home soil. But you know what? She's a Grand Slam champion. I don't care what anybody says. And look, I've been critical of her on, on Australian soil, but she's a Slam champion. She deserves some respect. And I, I think when all is said and done, she'll look back on her career really fondly and everybody else will be too. She's been... She's been the custodian of this sport when no one else was on the women's side, on the mm. WTA side. She was the only one in the top 100 for such a long time, and she's had to fight tooth and nail for everything. She's been wonderful, and um, what a win that was back in 2011, which is almost nine years ago now. Yeah, amazing that it was nine years ago. And yeah, you summed it up perfectly, though. Um, you know, I think it would have been a real a real shame, almost a, tr- almost a tragedy if... Uh, if Sam hadn't have uh, won that slam, because uh, I guess what's happened since then is, um, you know, is all the stuff that you mentioned about, um, you know, flaking at, at Australian Opens and um, on on soil, etc. But um, yeah, it's it's awesome that she's that she's got that title. And um, yeah, speaking of the AO, back on that, um, yep. and back number to one, 19. yeah, my number one, and you already mentioned it, 
Um, but um, yeah, it was the final when uh, Naomi Osaka defeated Petra Kvitova 7-5, 5-7, 6-4. And I think the thing that I loved about this was not only was it the real... Um, the real, the, the real, I guess, emergence of, of Naomi Osaka because we've been speaking about her for a bit, and you know she's kind of this like Serena prototype. She yeah. just hits the cover off the ball, um, you know, when she's on mainly. I think she's still got to work on her consistency a little yeah. bit, um, but she really did nail it at this tournament. And I think the great thing about this particular match was that um, not only did did no one want it to end, but I think it was one of those matches where you kind of just watch it and you just think, why can't both these women just win the title? Yeah, um, because I I remember watching this and thinking I, I really want Naomi Osaka to win this match because um, she's really the next big thing I think for women's tennis. But on the flip side was you've got Petra Kvitova who's come back from an injury that really should have ended her career yeah. almost, and she has come back, got back to her best pretty much, um, made another Grand Slam final. Of course, she was already a Grand Slam champion, but hadn't hadn't quite got there in the, uh, in Melbourne. Um, but she's got to the final um, on the back of all this hardship she's endured. Um, and look, it would have been great to see her win as well. And unfortunately, these I guess these two great stories just came together, and in the end, only one had to win. But um, you know, I'm glad those two women competed in that final. And, and no matter who was going to win, we had a, a really good story out of it. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. And um, it was you know Osaka managed to back up her 2018 US Open win. Um, and win consecutive Grand Slams. The number one ranking was also on the line that night. Um, so whoever yeah. won that was going to be the new world number one. So Osaka managed to clinch that um, over Kvitova. And yeah, it was just, it was a wonderful night and it had everything. It's the best women's final that I've ever seen um, at Melbourne Park. And um, I, I think something extraordinary is going to have to come around and top that. So just a phenomenal match from, from both players. And my number one, um, you mentioned it before, the Roland Garros final last year, Ash Barty defeating Mar- Marketa Vondrausova, 6-1-6-3. As you said, Barty's first slam. Um, just It was just a wonderful occasion for, for tennis in Australia to see another Grand Slam champion and the second of the decade um, for Australia. And, yeah, just absolutely brilliant. And it, it the tournament for Barty had everything. Serena went out. She was in her quarter. And Barty just beat who she had to beat and didn't look over who was on the other side of the net. She started the semi-final really well against Anisimova, who came back, had was up a set and a break. Barty came back, fought back, and won that um, won that epic semi-final. And then the final was um, just one-way traffic, 6-1, 6-3, to only drop four games and, and win that elusive slam. And, you know, she's become the poster, poster woman of Australian sport, really. she's I think she's... Been uh, she I would arguably say she's Australia's um one of Australia's best exports in sport at the moment up there with Daniel Ricciardo and Ben Simmons as as global ambassadors for sport for Australia and um, Sam Kerr as well I reckon yeah Sam Kerr as well can't forget her and Elise Perry there's so many but um Barty I think outdoes them all with with her skill and um her popularity and just her humility I think she's one of the most she's one of the most down to earth. Oh, yeah. Um, tennis players that you'll see on both tours and um, a good Richmond supporter as well. So, oh, yeah, um, just, that in. Uh, of course <laughs> I did. Of course I did. Um, so, yeah, just, uh, just a wonderful custodian of the sport in this country. So, brilliant. We had a couple of similar matches in, in the women's, um, women's best matches. I don't know if there's any in the men's actually. So I reckon this could be, this could be very different. Uh, so we'll start with your, your men's fifth best match, Joel. Yeah, so my fifth best was um, back in 2009, the Australian Open semi-final. 
between uh, the two countrymen, Rafael Nadal and uh, Fernando Verdasco. Fernando Verdasco. 6-4, 7-6, 6-7, 6-4. And of course, at the time, that was the longest match uh, in the history of the Australian Open, which ran for five hours um, and 14 minutes. And yeah, uh, yeah that was just a, an awesome match. I think it was um, uh, afternoon session um, on the uh, on the Friday. Or the no, it was the night. It was the night session. It was a night session. Yeah. Yeah. Um, How but, Rafa uh, yeah, backed it, up to win the final after that yeah. in five sets over Federer, I'll never know how he managed yeah. to do it. But um, that was Pete Nadal around that time. Yeah, it was, and the the guy was just he was just on fire. He'd won, I think, was. three. I think he'd won the French uh, Wimbledon and the Australian Open. So he'd held all three. He'd held three of the four slams at that point after that tournament, and he was he was just in such ominous form and he was managing to to hit balls that I've never quite seen struck and there were a couple of points where he just hit forehands down the line curling in and Jim Correa was up out of his seat and um uh yeah it was forehand down the line oh it was was, (laughs) oh we love Jim but yeah no you're right that was one of the best matches I've ever seen and um it could easily go into my top five it was just it was absolutely brilliant, and yeah, it was. What's what's your one memory from it? Um, from uh, from that uh, from that AO two thousand and nine. Oh, that from that match. Yeah, well, I think I don't know. I think it was. Um, I think it was probably toward. It was definitely in the last set where. Um, you know, I think it got to a point where it could sort of just go either way. Um, and I think what made it really good as well was. Um, I think. I think um, you know we've got to a point where even though he's still sort of floating around the tour, I think we sometimes forget just how good Fernando Vidasco mm. was. Yeah. He, he was an awesome player. Peak Vidasco was 40s. awesome to watch. Yeah, no, he was, um, and um, you know I think that was you know unfortunately it was probably almost the I guess a bit of a peak for him. Yeah, um, it was. Yeah, but um, yeah, it was. Um, and I guess what you want is you always want your you know your your big four, big five, big six, whatever we want to call them. Um, to to get pushed all the way, and um, you know that that certainly happened. And um, yeah, you've got a you've got a great narrative there. You've got these you know these two Spanish bulls just going at it. You've got yeah. the Spanish bull and another Spanish bull just you know trying to bring the bring the big dog down. But um, yeah, it was just an awesome awesome match. And um, you know, I, the, obviously the big story at the time was uh, was the length of the match. And then yeah. um, I'm sure we'll get to this in a little bit. It was uh, it was soon eclipsed a few years later in. Uh, Another match involving Armadale. Yeah, 100%. That's definitely in your top five, which we'll get to. My fifth one was um, the 2015 Roland Garros final. Stan Vavrinka over Novak Djokovic, 4-6-6-4-6-3-6-4. Stan's second slam and kept Djokovic without that elusive French Open for another year longer. And, geez, the, the backhands that oh, Stan hit that night, I was constantly up off my couch screaming at the television because it was just that good and the go- like Djokovic did not do much wrong during this match Stan was just too good he he you don't see Djokovic get bludgeoned on the court much and there's only probably three or four other times that I've seen it happen one of them was to dominate team at the French in 2017 but what Vavrinka did to Novak that night was just clinical the backhands the forehands everything he did turned to gold and he was such a deserving winner of that title, and um, it was just—it was just pure. It was pure ball striking, and I loved every second of it. Yeah, and what we know about Stan is that when he's up and about, he is up and about. Yes, and that backhand is just delicious, delicious, delightful. Yeah. 
there's a lot of synonyms. There's yeah. a lot of synonyms we can use. Yeah. Um, Your my, Yeah, my, my fourth best is, um, it's it's a bit left field, but there's um, some sentimental value in, in it for this one. Um, 2016, Wimbledon, first round, out on, I think it was court three or four. Um, John, Mil- John Millman up against Albert Montanus. Remember him? Yes, I do. Yeah, so uh, this was a five-setter, seven, five, four, six, five, seven, six, four, six, three. John Millman came out on top, and um, the reason that this one stands out is not only do I love John Millman, we, we both do, yeah. um, but um, I was actually at this match. Um, it was my first time um, at a slam overseas, uh, one of the overseas slams, um, and fortunately for me, it was um, it was Wimbledon, and it was day two, and um, lined up for five hours. Uh, out in the grounds before nice. play started. Got there at 6am, got in, looked at the schedule. John Millman's on court three. Off we go. Um, and it was just an awesome match. And yeah. It was an awesome day. And I don't think I'll ever forget that match because it was the first uh, first, um, uh, first, and only match at this point that I've watched um, live at Wimbledon. So, um, yeah, it'll uh, long live in the memory. Ah, oh, that's amazing, mate. And yeah, I remember you messaging me that morning going, um, or that night going, guess where I am, sending me photos, watching Johnny out of the All England Club. And I was um, I was quite jealous. So no, that's um, that's a, it's a brilliant story. My number four was this year, and this is one that I also was lucky to be at. And um, Roger Federer defeating Tennis Sandrin in the uh, Australian Open quarters, 6-3, And uh, Tennis Sandrin, who was named after... His grandfather, Tennis Sandrin, <laughs> who was also from Tennessee. We've tweeted that out many times. But, um, yeah, what a... Uh, this match was just... An, as a massive Federer fan, I was I was resolved to the fact that it was over. Um, match points yeah. at 5-4 down for, uh, for Federer. He was serving to stay in it. Saved a couple. Then in the tie break, he saved... Uh, I think he saved three in that game. And then in the breaker, he saved four more. It was just... The, the match just had everything to save seven match points and come back and win it. It just, oh, it was, it, I was, I was invigorated. I, I just, I felt like I could spit fire after that match. It was just wonderful. Federer on the one leg, injured, completely down and out. Um, unfortunately had to lose to Novak Djokovic in the, in the uh, semifinals on, but on one leg, it was just, it was a stunning performance and it shows why Roger Federer is the greatest of all time. Yeah, good call, Val. And I think uh, if a certain Ryan Tennyson was here, maybe we'd be having a, a bit of a, a feisty debate right now about uh, about the GOAT. Um, because it's not, it's not Djokovic. The, it's not. Back in the day. <laughs> it's not Djokovic. It never will uh, be. Anyway, we'll move on. Um, my third best match involves the great man, Roger, as well, um, against another great man that we've already spoken about, um, Mr. John Millman. Oh, um, what a match. From the, yeah, from the 2020 Australian Open third round. Um those that watched this match will uh, remember it like it was yesterday. Um, it almost was yesterday. Course, Roger Federer ended up winning 6 6-4, 6-4, 6-4, 6-4, 6-4, 6-4, 6-4, 6-4, 6-4, 6-4, 6-4, 6-4, 6-4, 6-4, 6-4, 6-4, 6-4, 6-4, 6-4, 6-4, 
a favourite in this match for me. Not not so much um, a favourite in the sense of expected to win, but um, you know, a favourite in the sense of you want to get behind him. And, yeah. Um, it was John Millman, and um, yeah, unfortunately, in, in the end, um, uh, Roger just as he so often does, he just found a way to, yeah. to get through it. And um, yeah, it was just uh, it was an incredible match. Um, and we we think potentially in hindsight that. Um, that uh, Fed was maybe walking wounded a little bit, certainly when um, he came up against uh, Ten Sangren uh, later in the tournament. But um, for what it was, um, it was just an, an awesome match. And it was so good to see John Millman um, on home soil, on centre court, really take it to, to Roger Federer, even though, of course, uh, as we know, um, he actually has beaten Roger Federer before. Yeah, no, he definitely has in the 28. It was the rematch kind of of the 2018 US Open um, fourth round. But yeah, that, that match for me had had absolutely everything. And as a massive Federer fan, it was the only time I'd ever want John Millman to lose a match. And um, <laughs> I felt so guilty for barracking for Roger. But it was just that he was 8-4 down in the final set super tiebreak. And he came back and won the last six points of the match to claim it and go through to the fourth round. It was kind of... I think a semi-final gone begging for John Millman. I think if he had gotten through that, he would have beaten Martin Fushevic. He would have knocked off um, Tennis Sengren as well. The form he yeah. was in, um, the opened up. yeah, it really did, and th- that um, that was definitely a semi gone begging, and it could have been Millman against Djokovic in the uh, in the final four. But um, yeah, what what a match it was, and thank God Roger got through because I, I was in a tent on my phone watching that camping. I'll never go camping during the Australian <laughs> Open again, um, but. Boy, Shout oh boy. Out to Rachel Fletcher, your lovely miss. Yes, yeah. Um, no, I think I've told her that already. Um, but yeah, uh, your, my number three was uh, t- the 2018 US Open quarterfinals. Uh, Dominic Team um, starting so well against Rafael Nadal, but unfortunately coming unstuck in the final hurdle. He won, uh, Nadal winning that match. Love six, six, four, seven, five, six, seven, seven, six. The ball striking was as pure as you'll ever see. Team's backhand was just. It was delightful, delicious, as we said with stands. No, there's just no no more superlatives to go with it. Nadal was just too good on the day and played an unbelievable match to come back and fight out of it. Um, it, it just had everything, and uh, Nadal would go on to retire in the semifinals against Juan Martín del Potro and. Um, thank God he got to the end of that one because it was just, it was class all the way through and they constantly show highlights of it and they played again in the Australian Open quarters this year with team winning that one in four. So he got his um, he got his just desserts after losing a few close slam matches to Rafa. You're number two, Joel. Yeah, so um, there's a bit of a common theme with my, with my matches in case no one's picked up on it yet, but um, it'll really be reinforced here. Um, 2018 <laughs> US Open, round of 16. Um, Johnny Millman defeats Roger Federer. What a day. 3-6, 7-5, 7-6, 7-6. I remember watching this at work and just being completely and utterly distracted. Um, <laughs> it was just it was just tools down. Sorry to my uh, my uh, former boss and colleague, Adrian Horton. Um, I was uh, very distracted that day, but um, couldn't help it. It was on uh, it was on ESPN, and uh, the great thing for us in Australia, it was on, uh, it was on the tally at about, um, I think, 11 a.m., yeah, um, no, it was the there. time zone was great. I think it finished at yeah, about three perfect. o'clock, so it was awesome. Yeah, yeah, it was um, prime time on ESPN at, uh, at um, Arthur Ashe, so it was perfect for us. And um, of course, in the end, against all the odds, really, John Millman just came out of nowhere from a set down and ended up taking out Roger Federer in four. And um, yeah, it was it was great to see. Um, hashtag Millmania. Well, uh, I was I was still a little bit upset that Roger did lose, <laughs> but. 
Oh, well, we must move on. We must move on. Um, the 2009 Wimbledon fourth round is my number two. Leighton Hewitt defeating Radek Stepanek. What a blast from the past. Oh, um, 4 6 2 6 6 one 6 2 6 2 Leighton Hewitt, um, for those who don't know, was my Federer before Federer. Um, <laughs> I, I loved Leighton Hewitt and used to... Um, and used to, you know, stay up late watching all of his matches as well as Federer. They were my two sort of favourites going hand in hand. And that was my confliction with who I wanted to win. At the start, it was kind of Hewitt, but now sort of would move more towards Federer. But um, the that match had absolutely everything. Typical Leighton Hewitt going down two sets and then all of a sudden just turning it on um, on court two at Wimbledon and, and winning it in five. And I stayed up until about three in the morning watching it. Unfortunately... He'd go down to Roddick um, in the in five sets in the U.S. Open. Uh, sorry, in the Wimbledon quarters, the next match, which was disappointing. But um, what a match that one was, and it still sticks out with me um, eleven years later. So yeah, wonderful, wonderful memory. Staying up late watching watching Wimbledon. Your number one, Joel. All right, the big one, twenty twelve Australian Open final. Novak Djokovic defeats Rafael Nadal five seven six four six two. Six seven seven five, and uh, we mentioned it before, um, talking about uh, Rafa Nadal and uh, Fernando Vadasco. Um, that being the previous longest match in AO history, this was absolutely eclipsed by one five hours and fifty three minutes. I remember, um, obviously at the time, uh, Val, both you and I were in. I think we were in year, year eleven that year, and um, this match really didn't finish until about two am, and it was the start of the school year for us. Yeah, I know it was um, too. Yeah, that year, and um, I I stayed the course, um, stayed up all night, and so um, did I. I was absolutely exhausted the next morning. But boy, was it worth it because uh, that was just a match for the absolute ages, um, and um, it was just it was on a knife edge the whole time. It just ebbed and flowed, um, and just two two fighters just yep. <laughs> going at it the whole time. And um, you know, it's. It's pretty hard to forget the uh, the images of uh, when that one was done and dusted. Novak just absolutely destroying that T-shirt he was wearing. Uh, that, <laughs> I, I have, and this isn't to do with my opinion of Novak, which, but... <laughs> Let's not get into that. I hated that celebration. Hated it, ripping his shirt off. I just thought it was egotistical and awful. I, I really, I really hated it. And I, I still can't wait. Even when he beat Federer last year and he started eating the grass... Oh, it made me want to throw a brick at the TV. Oh. <laughs> just, I, oh, it's, oh, just, uh, yeah, let's, let's, let's get off that. But what an unbelievable match it was. And yeah, five hours and 53 minutes. It just, it had absolutely everything. And Djokovic just doesn't lose finals or semifinals at Melbourne Park. And Nadal threw everything at him. I think that was Djokovic's seventh or eighth consecutive win over Rafa at the time. And Rafa didn't end up getting him until the clay court season started. And, it was just, it was a phenomenal, phenomenal tournament and a, a, what a culmination of a match to to finish it off. And yeah, unfortunately for Nadal, um, he was just crushed at the end of it. But Djokovic, the thoroughly deserving winner, down a break in that final set and to come back and win it in, in that time, two just genuine heavyweights of tennis. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Um, yeah. yeah, I think um, it was interesting with the celebration uh, even though I, I guess I'm not really, I kind of sat on the fence with with, with that one. Um, you know, I think it was just there would have been just so much adrenaline just running through both guys. Yeah. Um, it, I think it was just kind of emotion spilling over. So, look, I kind of had no no issues with it myself. Yeah. But um, yeah, I guess each you know everyone's going to have their yeah. their own opinion. But it I was, don't know. I just don't like shirt ripping. 
Yeah, like when players enough, do it, yeah. it's kind of like, really? Do you, do you have to do that? Do you really yeah. have to? Yeah, yeah. No, fair enough. But um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was just an incredible match. But yeah. um, Val, let's hear your number one. My number one, well, Roger Federer. 2017 Australian Open final defeated Rafael Nadal 6-4-3-6-6-1-3-6-6-3. I was there that night, um, my first ever Grand Slam final, to see Roger and Rafa going toe to toe and going five sets in what was the sort of fairy tale outcome for the Australian Open with Serena and Venus playing the final in uh, the day before. It was yeah. Oh God, what what an unbelievable night! I think I shed a few tears after Federer ended up winning the match and um, the the final set had absolutely everything. Nadal up a break three one. Um, Federer winning the last five games of the match. There was a a point at four three juice where Federer hit a forehand down the line after a really long rally um, to end up breaking Nadal. And it just... The whole crowd just erupted with the shot. It was just one of the... It was one of the best matches I've ever seen. It's the best match I've ever seen live. Best match I've ever watched. It just had absolutely everything. The quality was brilliant. And the storyline was just amazing. Both players coming off months and months off injuries. Um, Yeah people doubting whether they'd ever win a slam again and then both end up having years to remember and only reason Federer didn't finish year end number one was because he finished he skipped the whole clay court season that year and um yeah the two of them were just were just super that night and just un- unbelievable unbelievable matches and just quick honorable mentions to the um uh, 20 2005 Australian Open round of 16 in quarterfinal matches Hewitt overcoming Nadal and Nalbandian in back-to-back five setters those ones I look back on really fondly as well but they're our top fives we're going to continue with those over the next few weeks until sort of tennis comes back and hopefully it does come back soon but there's plenty of those to get through just before we do go Joel yeah we have a segment that we came up with in January um, oh, here we go here and I want you to run through this because this is your this is your baby. Um, so <laughs> run us through what this new segment is. Yeah, so uh, this new segment is called Benoit of the Week. So <laughs> <laughs> so the thinking behind this is we're gonna we're gonna nominate uh, we're gonna nominate someone um, or something doesn't have to be from tennis. It can be from the wide world of of anything really. Um, someone who's been a bit erratic, maybe a bit stupid. Um, maybe a bit good, maybe a bit of all those things. Who knows? Who knows what you're going to get from Ben Pair <laughs> on any given day. But essentially, um, we're going to hand this thing out um, under any of those criteria, um, justified, of course, and then we're going to, we're going to dish out the Ben Moir of the year. Yep. Uh, at, at the end of the year, if, there, if there's been... Um, if there's been multiple nominations, which um, I, I'm, I'm sure that uh, when tennis eventually does come back, um, the man that this award is actually named after will, will probably cop a few nominations for his own award. But um, yeah, should we get to it? Yeah, I think so. And look, who better to give the first Benoit of the week to to Benoit Pair? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um, so I think obviously he's got to be he's got to be the first recipient of the Benoit of the week. Um, you know, yeah. mainly, and I'll give it to him for his antics at the Australian Open this year in the second round. Plays Marin Cilic four points oh. into four points into the match. He's kicked over what the Kia sponsors board. Um, he's you know a game later he's spat on the court. He's thrown his racket. He's complained to the umpire. He's tried to rail, uh, rile up the crowd. 
Um, he's thrown his racket again. He's screamed at himself in French or English. He's hit a good shot. He's come back. He's lost interest. He's gained interest. Um, it was the full Benoit Bingo ball. Yeah, well, we, and that's another thing that we're going to start. Benoit Bingo. And you can play with us the next time he plays. We're going to get a, a board together and um, and we'll see next time Benoit Pair does play. We'll see if... Um, if we can, if we can um, play Benoit Bingo and, uh, you know, I don't know what the prize is if you win, but um, I don't know, maybe Benoit can give us some tickets to his to his matches and we can hand them out. But, um, it's yeah. a smash bracket in my garage. <laughs> Done. Done. That's the one we give out. So Benoit, ben, Benoit 1 um, will give to Benoit Pair. So that's uh, that's our first Benoit uh, Benoit of the week, and obviously had, had to go to him. How fitting! Yeah. It's almost like we hadn't thought of that uh, before the show. Yeah. Oh, I know. <laughs> oh god. Um, but yeah, no, that's that's a nice little fun segment, and we'll introduce more more segments like that um, throughout the year, and um, and just continue on. But. Uh, that's that's pretty much it from us today. A bit of a look back into some old matches that we've enjoyed watching. A bit of look at current situations and and what's happening in tennis today and sort of in the revamped break point. But Joel, it's been an absolute pleasure again um, to sit uh, to sit in front of your face on screen and um, and talk to you about the world of tennis. No, always a pleasure, Val. And uh, yeah, good to get the uh, Benoit of the week out there. I'm I'm pumped about what this yep. can become. Yeah. Well, our aim by the end of the year is to get Benoit Pair on this podcast. Oh yes. Yeah, we're, uh, we're keen for this. Yeah, this uh, and we'll, we'll make a stinger with all of his best quotes, um, <laughs> and and we'll go from there. But um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully we can get Benoit on, and maybe maybe he, we can um, maybe we can send him like a little trophy with his face on it. Um, a photoshopped <laughs> one um, and get the Benoit of the week. But um, brilliantly done by you today, mate. Um, we'll see you next week. Yep, sounds good, mate. See you then. This has been Breakpoint Podcast. Val Febo and Joel Ferrucci here with you as we will be every week uh, in the coming months just chatting about the world of tennis and uh, past, present, future players and trying to think of content while tennis isn't on. But um, stay safe, everybody. Keep keep washing your hands and make sure coronavirus doesn't get you because we want you all safe and um, have an awesome day, awesome week. We'll see you very soon.